0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pace Performance Bite Size. So, This next 15 or 20 minutes is taken from episode 212 with Boo Sheck where he dives into his philosophy around plyometrics, how he programs plyometrics and how that changes various different sports. So it's an absolutely cracking episode with Boo. If you're collecting jump data or any other forms of data and you're looking for a free solution to be able to collect that data and report to coaches, Rock Daisy's AMS Lite could be a perfect fit for you. So check them out at rockdaisy.com. Would you be able to just give a bit of an overview on your philosophy when it comes to plyometrics? Then we can kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic.
1: Sure. Uh, generally speaking, I think that plyometrics are pretty much an essential part of just about every training program. I think that they are very important as far as skill teaching, as well as the power and elastic strength development that they produce. Uh, I think that they are a huge, of a huge importance in supplementing the acquisition of speed and strength. Uh, I think that plyometric training should be a very high quality, not a quantity based, but a quality based approach. I think there are certain types of plyometrics that serve very definite roles in the program, so I think that you have to be organized in that regard. And I guess finally, I think that plyometrics should be very purposeful, meaning that rather than just doing things to do them, I think that it's very important that you have a very distinct targeted purpose each time you put an athlete through some type of plyometric uh, workout. Uh, I think that every uh, different type of plyometric has a unique purpose, and I think the key to success there Uh, besides applying some common sense, is the ability to use each type of plyometric as it is intended to be used in the role it's intended for.
0: When you when you say um, skill teaching, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that we we always think of plyometrics as something that makes you explosive and improves your elasticity and so forth. But I do think that plyometrics are tremendous motor educators, and that they teach you how to apply forces to the ground in certain very precise and very particular uh, planes and 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 and, and um, of movement. So I think that uh, if the plyometric program is appropriately diverse and you hit uh, correct ratios of horizontal to vertical types of work, I think that you see not only strength and speed and power levels increase, but I think that you also see general movement quality increase. I think you see uh, sprint mechanics improve. I think you see change of direction qualities improve dramatically if you hit the right bases in your plyometric program.
0: So you mentioned that you, you believe that, that, that each plyometric exercise has a purpose. How do you bucket the exercises together to form like a form? I guess a, a menu for you to choose from. So depending on what purpose you have, is a, a bunch of exercises that you could kind of pick from. Is that how you work?
1: That's exactly how I work. I, uh, I I'll venture from it occasionally, but for the most part, uh, almost all of my plyometric series and and our circuits exercise groupings. Are all pre-assembled. and I select from those different groupings depending upon the purpose of the training session and the time of the uh, the time of the year. Uh, I have, I and I basically, I typically break plyometrics down into three main categories, I guess you would say, your in-place jumps uh, are typically done in circuit form. And I have three or four different circuits that I use depending upon the level of the athlete and the stage of training. And I think that in-place jumps are by far the best way to establish your plyometric volumes. You know, if you're going to have an athlete who's going to uh, do significant amounts of plyometric work, um, uh, I'm not a big volume person, but there are some volume some basic uh, work capacities that are specific that need to be developed in that regard and in-place jumps are the best way to do that you know if you take a look at in-place jumps a, a good circuit might have 10 or 12 different exercises in it well if you have 10 or 12 different exercises then Uh, each of those exercises is stressing the hip, the ankle, the knee in a different way. All those exercises are stressing ligaments and tendons and cartilages and soft tissues in different ways. So you have tremendous diversity there in the way the tissues are being hit. And since the number one cause of injury typically is repetitive movement, because of the fact that you're picking all of these different exercises, uh, you have zero chance of repetitive movement injuries when you use in-place jumps to build your volumes. That's why I think that they are very uniquely suited for that uh, purpose. Um, the second type of basic classification of plyometric I, I, I use are what I call short bounds. Short bounds are, have a technical demand. Uh, they can be horizontal or vertical. And their primary purpose is, in addition to the um, to the power and elasticity that they develop. Uh, these are your skill producers. These are the, uh, the jumps that actually teach athletes how to apply forces to the ground co- correctly. They teach the correct timing uh, of the um, ground contact uh, forces and swinging forces that are involved in, the, uh, in jumping activities. And therefore, they have the most carryover, in my opinion, to the uh, to, to skill, uh, uh, more transfer into sports skills probably than any of the others, all of the others that we see. The third category is extended bounding. Extended bounding is, uh, they're very similar to short bounds, but they're done over greater distances, you know, 30, 40 meters or so. And these are about power sustenance. Um, you know, for many, many years, uh, extended bounding has always been associated with the triple jump in athletics. Um, But I I don't think that's a very good comparison, to be very frank with you. Um, You know, I always think that when you take your triple jumper and are bounding them like 50 meters, that's kind of like running your 100-meter sprint or 800. It just isn't that specific. I think where these exercises really shine, though, is in sports and activities where you have uh, a high power output, but you also have a pseudo endurance output. Uh, uh, demand as well. So I think that they fit really well into the middle distances in track and field sports like basketball, where, you know, you have these two-minute spurts of play and such. So I think they're very applicable in those situations. And then the final category would be your depth jumps. And uh, your dev jumps, the purpose there is very simple. It's uh, high-end training, very high-intensity training for the athletes that are prepared for it, to train uh, power and elasticity at the very highest levels. So in short, that's my taxonomy. I'll sometimes subcategorize a little bit within those, but for the most part, that's kind of how I see the plyometric world and all of the plyometric options you have out there available to you.
0: Superb. On on the short bounds in that in that category, you mentioned that you can go vertical and horizontal. Is there purposes for each one of those? Wait, I know you mentioned you can subcategorize. So would that be a subcategory of that of that? Um that group
1: absolutely um yes they are uh and and i try very hard to maintain certain ratios of vertical to horizontal work and i typically i find that athletes gravitate toward more effective movement patterns if you work vertical to horizontal at a ratio of about two to one um and i can't really explain why that is Uh, i think it has a lot to do maybe with just human anatomy and we're kind of um we're horizontally oriented creatures, I guess, is what you say. You know, if you look at an animal who runs around on all fours and you look at the human hip, there, there's still some vestiges there of similarity in the anatomy. Um, so maybe it has something to do with the point we are right now in our evolution, but as a species. But that being said, uh, I, I think that it's much more difficult. Uh, anecdotally, I found that it's much more uh, difficult. and takes more effort to develop the vertical qualities as opposed to the horizontal qualities. Now, why you need both is obviously because just about any time you push off of the ground in a jump or a run or or throwing or changing direction, there's a horizontal component and a vertical component. And the ability to manage forces in both planes, I think is very uh, important. For example, if you're you know, accelerating, there's a very large horizontal component as you push against the ground. So in order to enhance that, um, that the acceleration mechanics of uh, horizontal multi-jump type of activities are, are advised. On the other hand, if you look at maximal velocity sprinting, the forces are far more uh, vertically oriented. So vertical, um, abilities, the ability to produce force effectively in a vertical plane is critical to, uh, proper execution at maximal velocity. Well, so that being said, those are just two examples of, of those skills. And when you start looking at team sports and the changes of directions and all of the different unpatterned, ac- acyclic type of movements you see in team sports, then it becomes obvious that um, you have to be versed in both and be able to combine them at, at will, so to speak.
0: So in, in team sports, say basketball, for example, when you're not you're not going to hit max velocity too many times during a game would that mean that your practice is more horizontal orientated in terms of plyometrics
1: possibly but not necessarily so like i said the okay. our natural disposition seems to be just for general movement quality that we need more vertical work than horizontal um uh, you know there are there are times when I may even go beyond the one to two horizontal to vertical ratio and maybe go one to three or even one to four for certain sports and activities. But I typically don't drop below that one to two uh, marker. So I I feel very strongly about that because I, I feel that vertical plyometric activities are really helpful when it comes to change of direction. I know they don't really look like it, but uh, I, I think that the, um, the 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 muscle groups that are responsible and effective in change of direction are um, are, are similar to those that we see use in in uh, single leg vertical jumping. And I also feel that um, if you take a look at like change of direction in team sports, um, I always see change of direction as a yielding type of activity. And just in my work, whenever I go to programs and uh, I see poor change in direction qualities. I typically see poorly organized uh, plyometric programs. And if you think about it for a second, you know, the, um, uh, I mean, if you're doing like a box drop jump or a rebound jump off of a box, Well, you're changing direction from down to up. Well, at the tissue level, there's really no difference in changing direction from down to up or left to right. It's all about eccentrics. It's all about yielding there. So I think that being effective in the plyometric realm is important in order to be able to change direction effectively. And the uh, vertical uh, plyometrics seem to be the environment where we can teach yielding best. Mm So uh,
0: another subcategory that I'm just going to mention is is single leg plyometrics where does where does that fit in or does that fit in
1: it does fit in but it i find single leg options in all of the different uh um, all of the different categories I mentioned. I use some, some simple single leg working in place jump circuits, uh, the short bounds. Uh, the majority of those I use are single leg, the extended bounding. And even with super high level athletes, uh, single leg depth jumps might even be something I might tackle. Although I've only had maybe three athletes in my whole career that I felt were uh, you know, qualified and prepared to do that type of work. So, yeah, single leg work is a big part of what I do, of course. And I do differentiate between single and double leg, but that's kind of in the context of those other uh, taxonomy uh, categories.
0: So in terms of, you mentioned that the depth jumps, single leg depth jump, those that may fit into that category have been very, very few. In the double leg depth jump category, is that still, do you think people move into that category too early? Is there still quite a, a low number of people that actually deserve to be in that in that category?
1: Well, it's no question that it does require a preparation, and I'm not talking about weeks. I'm talking about months and possibly years uh, in order to do genuine depth jumps. And I, and I want to differentiate. You know, some people, some coaches will pull out boxes and have athletes bounce on and off of boxes, and but that doesn't necessarily make it a depth jump. You know, when I when I think of depth jumps, I'm thinking of boxes that are very high, high enough to put an athlete into an environment, a motor environment, uh, an impact environment that they couldn't achieve otherwise. So, for example, let's assume that you have a young lady, and um, forgive my use of the imperial system, but let's assume that her vertical jump is maybe, uh, let's say, 24 inches, okay? Well, if you put her on a 12-inch box, or if you put her on a or if you put her on a um, 18-inch box, it's really not that big a deal because she could create those intensities without the presence of the box. But if you put her on, say, a 30-inch box and ask her to fall off and rebound, well, then suddenly you've increased the impact levels to something she could not create ordinarily. So to me, that's the difference between box jumps and dev jumps. And before I get an athlete to genuine dev jumps, they need to be adequately prepared. Uh, They need to be uh, um, uh invest months and, like I said, possibly even years before I'll do genuine death jump types of work with them. And then when I do, it's very um, short and sweet. You know, uh, it's quality based, very low volumes, and it's just like a a quick hit type of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Superb. Just moving kind of up the chain, looking at looking at it from a bit a bit of a more high level. Where does where does playos fit into the weekly structure in terms of, say, take a team sport, for example, who may have um, one game per week. Where does where do these fit in? And it'd be great to get your, your, your ideas on where the different categories fit in as well.
1: Well, when I, a personal philosophy of mine is that you handle things very differently in season versus out of season. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, a team sport person who's preparing for the season – Uh, I like to include some type of plyometric component every time they do a speed power-based type of workouts. And most of your good uh, preparatory programs, preseason preparatory programs, are going to do speed power work uh, two to three times a week. So I'm looking at plyometrics two to three times per week. Uh, During the early stages, the preparatory stages, the initial stages of an off-season program, I think there are three boxes that you need to check. You need to establish your volumes, and that's what your in-place jumps do. And then you have your short bounds in a horizontal and a vertical sense, and you, those are two other boxes that you need to check. And then you move into an emphasis on, not that you ever get away from the simple things, but you move into an emphasis on more advanced forms of biometrics, like the extended bounds or possibly the depth jumps or whatever is appropriate for that athlete. Now, once you move into the season, however, in my opinion, all rules are off not not trying to brag but you give me an athlete i can write the entire preseason training program for that athlete and i'll be on the money you know every every workout will be perfectly appropriate for that athlete's level but i do think that once the competitive season begins uh, nobody is that smart anymore uh, because once athletes start traveling and they have these uh weird aches that come from competitions and games and things like this you never know quite what you're going to get the competition season produces a very unpredictable environment. And I think that a good strength coach uh, becomes more uh, reactive at that particular time of year. So if I have an athlete who's competing, I kind of look at what's going on in the sport. I would like to uh, have them perform high intensity plyometrics in season every 10 to 14 days uh, if I'm going to do plyometrics, I want to get my money's worth out of it. You know, There's no sense of doing low-end stuff if you've already prepared them to do the high-end stuff. But at the same time, realistically, I know that uh, sometimes the demands of competitions, particularly athletes who are playing uh, or competing uh, multiple times in a week, that just might not be uh, realistic. And, of course, the sport itself has something to do with it. You know, if you're a basketball player or a volleyball player and all you ever do is jump, well, how many plyometrics do you really need in season? So I I do think that once you get into the season, um, there's a lot of variables that come into play. And I'm really hesitant to give a hard, fast answer um, that would apply uh, um, well to lots of different Mm -hmm. sports and lots of different uh, ages.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Pace Performance Bite Size. So just a reminder, this episode came from a larger episode with Boo Sheck Snyder in episode number 212. And this episode was sponsored by Rock Daisy. So if you're looking for a free AMS solution to collate and report data, definitely check them out at rockdaisy.com.